Hello, everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. Today, we're here with Dr. Carl Truman, who's the professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. And we're going to be talking about his book that uh, was published in November by Crossway, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Uh, Dr. Truman, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, beyond what I just said uh, and introducing your book, do you want to maybe introduce yourself further, uh, your work, or anything else? Well, in, in background, I'm actually a Reformation guy. I cut my teeth at PhD, and then for many years after, uh, researching and teaching on the 16th and 17th centuries. So this book is is something of a break with my past on on, on that front. But I had the privilege of having a year's fellowship at Princeton University under the James Madison program, which is run by uh, Robbie George and uh, 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 Brad Wilson. Uh, and that was where I did the, the bulk of the research for, for the book that we're discussing today. I'm also uh, a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and uh, live in beautiful Slippery Rock in Western Pennsylvania. Awesome. So... For any of our listeners who potentially haven't read uh, your book yet, uh, one of the main arguments of your book is that the sexual revolution cannot be understood as a standalone process, but it's actually rooted in the last half century and things that have happened even before that um, and is tied to historical developments um, in our understandings of human identity. So why this book now? Why this argument now? And has this book been something that's been on your heart for a while? Or uh, do you want to speak a little bit to that? Yeah, good question. number of reasons why I, I published the book uh, or wrote the book you know, just now. Um, certainly over the last five, six, even years, even even decade, it's become clear to, to me, as I think to many of us, that some of the biggest changes and some of the most significant political challenges in society relate to matters uh, about human sexuality. And so in part, the book was written out of a desire to try to find out or analyze what's really going on. Why is it that, let's put it in, in rather blunt terms, why is it that the most private acts in which human beings generally engage have become the most pressing matters of public concern? And why is it, for example, that the question of religious freedom or even freedom of speech looks set to be uh, looks set to fall in some ways? Uh, I hope it doesn't, but could could fall on the issue of sexual identity politics. So I wanted in this book to try to help uh, myself first and foremost, and then my readers understand that the sexual revolution needs to be understood as a function of a much wider transformation in the notion of, of how we think of ourselves as human beings. And when you make that connection, then a lot of the other oddities of our current situation, for example, the fact that freedom of speech is suddenly being presented as a problem for democratic society, not uh, an essential of democratic society, a lot of these things start to uh, make sense. Personally, it, the book had been brewing for quite a while. I've been writing for First Things Online for probably nearly a decade now, and that has made me think a lot about contemporary cultural issues. And I've also had an interest in, uh, a, a personal interest in, in Marxist theory. 
since I was an undergraduate. I'm not a Marxist at all, but but Marxism and, and its various branches has always fascinated me as an intellectual phenomenon. And much of that, I think, has helped me uh, uh, explain what is going on today, which is you know, not unconnected to developments that took place in Marxism in the early 20th century. Awesome. And, you know, a big part of, of your arguments is, as well has a lot to do with how uh, society has really turned from uh, defining ourselves from external truths and realities and looking for an inward um, way of self-defining ourselves. So do you think that, you know, these changes and along with a lot of the other things that you talked about going on now in modern culture, do you think it's, would you say it's important uh, now more than ever for Christians to hold to their identity in Christ? Yes, uh, I I do think that. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> clearly the Bible says our identity is in Christ, and clearly that's always going to be important. And it's in some ways it's no more important now theologically than it was two thousand years ago. So that's a kind of given. I think we need to be more aware of it now. Uh, for many many years, the ide- the identity we have in Christ was not being practically challenged in the ways that it is today that you could be a christian in society and still if you like be a respectable member of society what we have today is a culture that has drifted away or has set itself often in opposition to traditional practical christian morality not only that it's come to identify traditional christian positions on things such as sexuality with oppression and bigotry. And that means that it's not going to be as easy to identify ourselves publicly as Christians in the future. And that does mean that that our identity, in, in you know, our, our consciousness of our identity and the anchors we have for that identity are going to need to be a whole lot stronger than they typically have been. One of the burdens in the book, I don't really develop this, but I point to it at the very end, is, is the idea that if, if identity is often driven by the uh, social frameworks or the communities in which we exist, uh, then our strongest identity comes from the strongest community in which we exist. And if the church is not the strongest community in which we exist, then our understanding of our identity, the stability of our identity at a practical level, is going to be severely challenged by the identities we have given to us by the society around us. That's super helpful. Thank you so much. And so on our podcast, typically when we Uh, We actually started off our first season ever, we did the book of Nehemiah, and we spent a bit of time going through the historical background and the context, and we got a lot of positive reviews about that uh, from people that listen. And uh, so I thought one of the most helpful parts of your book was kind of your historical walkthrough through people like uh, Rousseau and Nietzsche and Marx, Darwin, Freud. And so moving from people like Rousseau, who basically didn't kick off, but kind of developed in this uh, way or trend, starting with how we're intrinsically good and need to act in accordance with our nature. And then you work all the way down uh, to Freud and how at our core, he argues, we're a sexual being. So can you talk about maybe the development from people like Rousseau to Freud, uh, especially with people like Marx, who you said you're interested in Marxist theory. And I think a lot of people nearly think about him in terms of economics. I'm an economics major, and that's how I had thought about him prior to this book uh, purely. So you maybe talk about the development with some of these key players? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, to 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 give the sort of the 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 overall big picture, the book is driven by my my wanting to explain how it is that the sentence "I am a woman trapped in a man's body" has come to be plausible in modern society, not simply for you know professional gender theorists like Judith Butler, but for the ordinary man or woman in the street. And in order, I think, to to get to a position where I am a woman trapped in a man's body makes sense. You have to understand that 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 sentence and the society that finds that sentence plausible places great authority in inner feelings, that who you are is what you feel inside. So the question in the book is, how do we get to this place where who we are is what we feel inside? And Rousseau is very significant in that. Rousseau is wrestling with the issue of, you know, what is it that, that screws people up? Why is it that society uh, has, has these inequalities and these injustices in it? And his answer is, well, it's, it's, it's the competitive nature of society itself, that if we could actually get back from the social structures in which we find ourselves and listen to that inner voice of nature, then we'd find the authentic us. So with Rousseau, you get this move inward. I mean, it, it, as, as you correctly point out in the question, he's not the guy who starts the inward move. I've had numerous people saying, why didn't you start with Descartes or why didn't you start in late medieval times? Somebody asked me, you know, why didn't you start in the Garden of Eden? Uh, you know, this, hey, I've got to start somewhere, and I don't want the book to be 10,000 pages long. <laughs> so I start with Rousseau because he's, he's, he's an influential figure on educational theory, these sort of things. I can justify, justify it, but it doesn't begin with him. But, but he's a good example of this authorizing of the, the inner state. And his idea is really picked up by the Romantics, very influential on the Romantic philosophers and, and poets and artists of the late 18th, early 19th centuries. What Rousseau and the Romantics have in common and what makes their project, I, I won't say you know, a good one, but, a, but a, a relatively safe one, is that they believe that human nature has a fixed moral uh, quality or structure to it, such that, you know, if Michael, Andre, and Carl all move inwards to, to discover that inner voice of nature, guess what? The inner voice of nature is all, for all of us, is basically saying the same thing. Be empathetic and kind towards other people. When you move into the 19th century, you have a number of figures who really challenge in different ways, uh, and with different degrees of intention, I think, challenge the notion of human nature having a, a moral structure. And Karl Marx is one of them. And you, you rightly said, Michael, you know, Marx is, most people, when they think of Marx, they think of Das Kapital, and they think of his economic theory. And quite often, if those who are familiar with, with Marx actually probably have a view of Marx that's refracted through Engels, because Engels is, is the more hard economistic sort of thinker of the two of them, whereby everything can be reduced to economic relations. But Marx, certainly in the, the Marx of, 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 of the early period, around about 1844, produces a number of writings that weren't, they weren't published actually until uh, sometime in the Soviet Union, the 1920s, 1930s, these, uh, these uh, the, 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 the economic and philosophical manuscripts, they're called. And they, uh, they articulated views of, of what it meant to be human. They were psychologically, one might say, more sophisticated, perhaps, than some of the later stuff <clears throat> that Marx produced. 
And there he was really trying to get at <clears throat> what is it that makes us think the way we do as human beings? And, and a lot of it's economic gain. <clears throat> but one of the things that emerges from those manuscripts is that the, the moral structure of being a human <clears throat> is something that is historically conditioned. It changes over time. He's really building off the, the philosopher Hegel, but taking him in a, in a more radical direction and a particularly materialist direction <clears throat> and essentially saying human morality is is simply something that emerges or, or is connected to the economic relations in society. And therefore, we shouldn't think about human nature as having a fixed moral structure. Around about the same time, a little bit later, <clears throat> you have uh, Friedrich Nietzsche arguing that metaphysics, and he's really got Kant in his, his sights, that metaphysics is simply a way of... Uh, one group <clears throat> imposing, normalizing, naturalizing its own will and its own desires over another group. In other words, there is no morality. There's just a game for power here dressed up as morality. Similar time, you have Darwin arguing for the origin of species. And uh, Darwin, I don't think Darwin is out to smash morality in the way that Nietzsche is or to radically relativize it in the way that Marx is. But Darwin essentially shatters the notion of human exceptionalism. We are just sophisticated, exalted apes, if you like. And morality, therefore, has to be, uh, uh, has to be rethought in terms of you know, the pragmatics of the survival of the species. So all of these three, these three thinkers are emblematic of an age that's getting rid of that, that notion that, that human beings have a sort of moral structure. Now, when you think about what that does, you now have a situation where inner feelings are being authorized, given great authority, at the same time as morality is being cashiered, is being dismissed as having any absolute hold on you. That really does free up those inner desires to go any which way you so choose. <clears throat> That's really, really good. And oh, do you have another question, Michael? Oh, I just had one thing to add. Uh, could you maybe just talk real briefly about how that led into to Freud and the turn towards the core being at our core were sexual beings by his definition? Yeah, well, Freud is is an interesting figure. Freud's very he's actually he he likes Rousseau. He's quite in, he's quite influenced by the the Romantics. Um, but he's also working in, in the milieu of, of late 19th century, early 20th century uh, Viennese medicine. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on at that point. And, and the 19th century sees a significant change in the understanding of particularly of childhood sexuality. The childhood sexuality ceases to, to be a moral problem. It becomes a medical issue. And then at the hands of Freud, it becomes simply a, a natural part of growing up. And in his uh, famous three essays on sexuality, Freud produces a, an account of what it means to grow up as a human being, uh, recast in terms of, of how the, the sexual drive of human beings is differently directed at different points. What he does in his, in his, in sort of, pushing sexualization back into childhood is he makes sexual desire fundamental to what it means to be a human being. You know, if Marx was in the room now, we would say, okay, okay, Dr. Marx, 
you know, you, you've really attenuated human nature. Is there anything that binds human beings together that means that we are not, you know, we're not just apes? I think Marx would say, well, the thing that distinguishes human beings is we intentionally make things. Uh, beavers instinctively produce dams. Mice instinctively uh, chew through wires. Human beings, we intentionally make things, and the relationship we have to the things we make, that's what makes us human. I think Freud would say what, what, makes, us, uh, what makes us human is our sexual desires. It's the intention attached to our sexual desires. And so human beings become sexual. Now, when you think of the implications of that, that means that sex moves from being an activity to being an identity. I've said this a number of times that if you, if you look at the Bible, Bible's full of sex, but it's an activity. You know, look at ancient Greece. Ancient Greece is full of homosexuality, but nobody's identifying as gay. Uh, it's, it's, you know, sex is an activity. Once you say that sexual desire is of the essence of what it is to be a person, a human self, then you make sex and identity, not an activity. And that, of course, has tremendous repercussions because it means that society's sexual codes are really codes that determine who you are allowed to be. In other words, sexual codes now aren't simply you know, moral taboos designed to you know, protect the family or something like that. They become profoundly political statements about who society considers to be a legitimate person. And that really sets up the play for the situation where we're in now. This, just before I came on the program, I'm writing a review of Scott Yenor's new book. The title is The Recovery of Family Life. Uh, and it's an analysis of really of, of the politics of gender and sexuality relative to uh, family life in the, in the 21st century. It's a powerful book and it rests upon or it's analyzing a society that, that Freud's key step made possible. That's really, really good. And as we, as you uh, kind of started shifting over into more the issues facing modern society. And it really boils down to, um, or at least the things that Michael and I really thought were interesting were how our identity um, is now in non-spiritual realities uh, in large part for a lot of people. And can you speak a little bit to how this has, how we've seen a shift in our education because of this? Um, and also specifically um, how ideas such as uh, the popularization of pornography um, and abortion and uh, you talk about the removal of the sacred order. Could you speak a little bit to these things and how these are really tied in, in today's society? Yeah, that's, uh, I think there's like six questions in one question there. That's a, that's a big question. <laughs> I say first, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, the, the, the kind of person I think that's emerged in the modern world is what I would call what, borrowing the term from Philip Reef, the, the sociologist, psychological man that we are, our desires and our thoughts. Uh, uh, and when you think about that, when, when that's your understanding of what it is to be a normative human being, then words take on peculiar significance. Um, you, you, Thomas Jefferson famously comments when he's talking about freedom of religion that you know, it doesn't matter to him whether his neighbor believes in one God, 20 gods, or no God at all. He says, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. In other words, for Jefferson, 
his understanding of what it was to be a person was very much rooted in his physical safety and his ability to own property. Uh, Words, freedom of speech, that's fine. When you live in a psychological world, freedom of speech, of course, can be cast as license to harm people because it gives you the freedom to speak in ways that deny the feelings, contradict the feelings, negate the feelings of other people. And we all understand that, I think, to some extent. You know, we can, it's easy to, to, to sort of jump on the dog pile, barking and shouting about snowflakes, et cetera, et cetera. But we all understand when, you know, some of the, the most damaging things that are done to us, some of the most hurtful that, you know, I, 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 at school, I, you know, I'm sure I, I got into fights occasionally and I played rugby for, for, for my house at school. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I got physically damaged at points. But I don't remember that at all. I can still remember things that were said about me that hurt. So I think we're aware that, that, that words do do, you know, uh, can do serious damage and, and great good as well. Where that's playing out in modern education, of course, is it's made education not so much uh, the place where we take, if you like, uh, little savages, little heathens, and we bash them into shape so that they can become decent members of society. Education now is all about protecting the individuals that, that come into the classroom from being hurt by or disturbed by things they might hear. That's an exaggeration, but I think that's how some people want to to sort of move uh, our educational uh, philosophies. So that would be one example of where the psychologization of of human beings has transformed things. In terms of uh, pornography, pornography, there, there are a number of things one could say about pornography. One, there's a lot of evidence emerging to show that the more people use pornography, the more liberal their views of what is and is not sexual, uh, sexually appropriate behavior becomes. So pornography changes how people think. We also know that it it re- literally rewires the brain in terms of its neural pathways. So who knows what the, the porn-saturated human beings of the future will, will think like because their brains will be physiologically different. Uh, I think it also pushes a philosophy of personhood that is as pernicious as anything. Often as Christians, we tend to think of pornography as bad because it promotes lust. Uh, And that's certainly true. And that's certainly one very good reason to object uh, to pornography. But I think it also more subtly reinforces a view of human personhood where other people exist for the sake of me and my pleasure. Uh, the person watching pornography on the screen, the sexual acts being performed there uh, are being performed for the pleasure of a third party, that there is an objectification and an instrumentalization of other people uh, that is, I think, problematic. I, I make this point in class, but usually in my class, in the final year class I teach, there's usually somebody getting married that summer. And I say to them, you know, when, you know, on the day of your wedding, you, you, you're waiting at the, uh, the altar at the front and the, the music changes, you know that the bride is coming in and uh, you turn around and you see a very beautiful girl walking down the aisle towards you, but it's not the girl you're engaged to. She's still very beautiful, though, and, you know, she'll probably be a good friend and, and, uh, and you can enjoy marriage with her. Do you still marry her? And the answer is always no. 
And that's a good answer because what's being pointed out there is uh, you marry somebody in order to marry that person, not for what you can get out of them, but because of who they are. They're an end in themselves. And I think what pornography teaches us is not that other people are an end in themselves, but that other people are an, are an instrument to the end of my personal pleasure. And that is a very dehumanizing way of looking at other people. So I would say pornography is, is very, very problematic on that front. The other part of the question you asked was about the sacred order, and that's a more general cultural uh, point. I think one of the interesting, a couple of interesting things about the culture in which we live at the moment. One of them is historically, uh, the elites in cultures uh, see it as their task to perpetuate the culture, to transmit the past through the present to the future, not without modification, but with, with respect and with high degree of continuity. We now live in an era where the elites in our society see it as their task to overthrow the past. Uh, it's not just a question of, of you know, tinkering with what is and is not considered to be modest in the public sphere, their task is to destroy the whole notion of modesty, uh, to make it look ridiculous. Their task is not to uh, adjust, uh, adjust marriage a little bit in order to make it fit with an advanced technological society or whatever. Their task is to ridicule the whole notion of traditional marriage and to destroy it. This connects, I think, to an interesting phenomenon, uh, and, and that is another aspect of modern culture that makes it very different from what has gone before, and that's the loss of what you referred to as a sacred order. Uh, in the past, society's moral order, the way it operated morally and ethically, was always assumed to connect in some way to some sort of transcendent metaphysical moral order. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, the Middle Ages, uh, Western European countries had law codes that were supposed to reflect, to some extent, the teaching of the Bible. So that if somebody said to their parents, why is it wrong to kill? The parents would at some point be able to say, because that's against God's will. Uh, the world has not been built by God for people to go around killing each other willy-nilly. It's against God's character. Today, we've abandoned any notion of, uh, of a sacred order, any, any notion of a God-given order. And even uh, thanks to Nietzsche philosophizing with a hammer and, and hammering Kant, any notion of a sort of transcendent metaphysical order. What we're now faced with is a world where, if you like, if you say to your parents, why shouldn't I kill, you get the answer back, because I say so. That society is essentially now dictating morality with no basis beyond itself to justify that morality. And that means that we will see, I think, an increase in diktat authoritarianism within our society, which we're already seeing in terms of some of the decrees that are being passed by our, our rulers and our masters. Uh, and we will also see continued and probably increasing moral instability, because if you cannot justify a moral rule by anything other than the moral rule or its pragmatic usefulness, guess what? That's a very unstable moral rule that isn't going to stand the test of time. That's really helpful. It's really helpful. So 
Uh, just thinking about that, I really liked um, how you concluded the book, and you hinted at this earlier, talking about like the Christian response, which you kind of covered towards the end of your book. And I think that's super helpful for Christians in particular, as we look around and see things like you talked about uh, abortion being a redefinition of what it means to be human, and that's why it's a death work. And so when uh, when Christians see that sort of thing around us, uh, you say that the three things that we should be thinking through as it pertains to the sexual revolution are uh, thinking long and hard about the core beliefs of the church, uh, being shaped by our community, our church community, and how that affects our moral consciousness. And then you lastly say we need to return to a high view of the physical body. And so I know those are three different things, but can you maybe talk through all three or just how you would uh, sum up for Christians how they should think through these issues? Yeah, well, that's the first. I think it's that's a standard. It should be a standard perennial, but it's more important now than ever before because you cannot assume that that everybody, every Christian, gets it. Every Christian thinks Christianly about these things, not for any other reason that they may not have been taught well, or they've been taught badly, or taught wrongly. But I do think the church needs to be very intentional in its, you know, to use the sort of the slightly pompous word, catechesis needs to realize that you can't assume the culture is filling in the blanks or giving the big Christian picture. The church has to give the big Christian picture. The church needs to be teaching the doctrine of God. It needs to be teaching on the incarnation. It needs to be setting every individual Christian truth within the context of all Christian truth so that we can understand the, the coherence of our faith and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within us. That may look different in different churches. It may be Sunday school classes in some churches. It may be uh, ministers preaching thematic sermons, uh, as well as the standard staple of expository sermons. It could be small group discussions. I, there are all, all kinds of ways that that can be achieved. And I think it's more important that it's achieved than that we argue about the details of how it's achieved. Uh, secondly, uh, what was the second? Uh, being oh, community. Yeah, I think that, again, going back to a point I made earlier, when identity is often shaped by community, and we all have numerous identities. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a member of the church. I'm a professor at college. Uh, I'm a writer. There, there are all sorts of different communities that I belong to that, that provide different facets of my identity. But ultimately, the strongest identity we have comes from the strongest community to which we belong or we might put it another way, comes from those things that we love the most. My identity as a husband is so much stronger than my identity as a podcast interviewee because it's more important to me. My, my life, you know, if my wife suddenly disappeared, I would cease to be the person I was in a way that if I was never invited to another podcast, it would make a whole lot of difference to me. Well, when you hold that in your mind, I think it means that we need to think about the church. The church needs to be a place where we have powerful community. And often Protestants, particularly evangelical Protestants, we tend to think of uh, Christianity very much in doctrinal terms. Uh, and, and that's good and that's proper. And, and, and it's, this is not an either or. But we don't just need the creed. We also need, if you like, uh, the cult and the code. We, we need the, the community and the way of life. Uh, the book of Acts 
does not say, well, you know, some Christians have the creed and some Christians have the community. You can't separate them in the book of Acts. You know, one of the sad things, uh, you may guys may be too young to remember this, but 10, 15 years ago, there was this thing called the Emergent Church, uh, which was you know, heralded as the greatest movement since the Reformation. As soon as anybody says that, you know it's hype and it's going nowhere. <laughs> but one of the sad things was a lot of guys like me reacted against the Emergent Church because it downplayed doctrine. And that was where we zeroed in. Whereas the Emergent Church also emphasized community. And I think it's a it's a great shame that that guys like me didn't pick up on that and see that as a good thing and and capitalize on that. Uh, that we sort of threw the we threw the baby out with the pretty awful bathwater, but but there was a baby there that that we we could have capitalized on. So I think community is is very important. Third one are the body. Uh, you guys would know this better than I do. My, my impression talking to younger Christians is, is often when you point them to the Bible's teaching on something like homosexuality, uh, the Bible's teaching is enough to, to get them on the right side of the discussion. But does that feeling that does God, yeah, okay, God says it's wrong, but God, does God just say it's wrong because he wants people to be unhappy uh, because he's mean. I think what uh, a, a, a rich understanding of, the, of, of, of nature and particularly of the physical human body is, it allows us to see that the biblical teaching on things like sexuality actually makes sense. It, it's, it's not a random imposition upon this world. It's not something that stands in, in, a, in a purely arbitrary relationship to the structure of the universe actually it's intrinsic the human body the male and the female body you know without wanting to be too crude about it are made to fit together in some ways and not to fit together in other ways um male bodies are not meant to fit together sexually it does a lot of damage and you can you know you only have to go to government websites on on health issues to see the damage that certain forms of sexual activity do to people uh, i think Getting people to think about you know, the big issues of the day, which I think by and large are the sexuality issues, the big issues of the day, but getting them to, to think about them, not simply in terms of, well, here's a proof text that says this is right and this is wrong, but also in terms of, and you know why that text says that? Because that's the way God created the world. That's the way you look, look at the logic of the world around you and you can see it. Um, I mean, another example, not a sexual one, but, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's famous statement is, you know, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. And in some senses, that's the vision or the notion of, of selfhood that grips the modern mind. We think of ourselves as first and foremost independent and free beings, and therefore everybody else as first and foremost a potential threat. And then secondly as having purpose primarily to be an instrument for my freedom. That's how we think of it. But then when you think about that statement, is man born free? No. I was present at the birth of both of my, I was present at my own birth, but I have no recollection of it. I was present at the birth of my two sons. They were incredibly dependent upon their mom from the moment they were born. 
and kind of dependent on me as well. If my wife and I had taken the, the, the kids home from the, uh, the hospital and said, well, you know, they're born free. Let's just leave them in the woods to make their own way. They're going to be killed by a badger or a fox. They're not going to live 36 hours. Best case scenario, they dehydrate and die. Man is born very dependent. Why is man born very dependent? Because he has a body. Our bodies put the lie to the modern myth of the free expressive individual because our bodies mean we are always dependent to some degree. We start our lives with a very high degree of dependence and we end our lives with a very high degree of dependence. And the two points in between, we're never fully free or dependent. Rousseau is talking absolute nonsense at that point. But as I've said in class many times, just because something is absolute nonsense doesn't mean that large numbers of clever people won't come to believe it and build their life philosophies upon it. So I would say an understanding of the human body is a great place to start about what it means to be a self because it immediately points us not only to the social nature of our identity, but also to the intrinsic dependence upon others that lies at the heart of what it means to be human. That's really awesome. And thank you so much for joining us today. As we, as we wrap up, there's a few questions that are uh, essentially a little lighter, but we like asking people who sure. uh, interview with us, but who would you say has been uh, an influential or potentially the most influential Christian thinker, uh, leader, podcaster, uh, pastor, um, in the past few months or past year that uh, has influenced you, um, just as we try to give our listeners more resources that they can go to? I, I think, I mean, he died less than a year ago, so I guess I can get him in under the, the, the last year. Dr. J.I. Packer um, has been a huge influence on me from the moment I was converted. Uh, so I would say, uh, I, I, people call him Jim Packer. I was... I have too much respect for him. He's doc in my mind. He's always Doctor Packer, uh, so Doctor Packer would be the man. <laughs> yeah, his. Uh, if nobody is any, if uh, listeners haven't read anything, they should. Would you agree they should start with knowing God? Yeah, knowing God. I started with God's words. It was just given to me by a local pastor, and I devoured it. And I thought, wow, who is this guy who writes so clearly and so graciously? Uh, so yeah, Doctor Packer. But knowing God is the famous classic that he wrote. Of course, of course. And uh, I also loved his evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, just the last light question that we wrap up with, I have a cup of coffee right here and we ask every guest if they're a big coffee drinker, if they have any preferred types of coffee. Uh, do you have any of that sort? <laughs> I'm going to really disappoint you at this point. I'm English. So tea is my preferred drink. Ah, okay. I actually prefer instant coffee to real coffee <laughs> which americans tell me it's not even real that's that isn't that's it's blasphemy even to use the word <laughs> so i am gonna as we wrap up here my wife and i we grab a i grab a cup of coffee at about 10 each morning but i'm afraid i make it with a teaspoonful of gra soluble granules <laughs> That's really funny. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. And even if that was a disappointment on the coffee, I promise you weren't <laughs> disappointed to us. And just thank you so much for your book and your ministry and uh, joining us today on Radically Normal. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.